Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. In this episode, we're picking up where we left off last week by exploring another crucial way that women are helping combat climate change and making the world a more livable place for everyone. According to the UNESCO Institute for Statistics, women account for less than 30% of all researchers globally. There are countless women who are looking to make a difference in science and academia, but face huge barriers due to gender discrepancies. So today, we're exploring how we can address these deep-rooted inequities in science, and why we must if we ever want to solve the climate crisis. Hi everyone, I'm Gabrielle Lipton, the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum, and welcome to GLF Live. Today, February 11th, is International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which is a UN holiday that recognizes the vital role of gender equity in the sciences. So we're really lucky to have with us today Co Barrett, who has not only risen to the top of her scientific field, but she's also helping make changes in the organizations in which she works to help other women do the same. She has a sweeping history as a climate policy expert and negotiator. Uh, currently, she serves as the Deputy Assistant Administrator for Research at the U.S. government body, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the NOAA. She also serves as the Vice Chair of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and she's the first woman to do so. Uh, many of you will remember that the IPCC's special report on 1.5 degrees, released in 2018, had a huge effect on global climate policy and awareness. And upcoming at the end of this year, or beginning of next, the IPCC will release another major report called the AR6, and we'll talk about that today, which will be of similar consequence and effect. So we're so lucky to have her with us today. Welcome, Co. And throughout the course of this conversation, if you have any questions, please drop them in the chat box because we'll be taking questions from the audience at the end. Um, but to start with, Ko, uh, you received your bachelor's in science from the University of North Carolina, Asheville. What made you decide to study science? Well, uh, first, if I could say, um, Gabrielle, I'm so happy to, uh, to be here today um, and to, uh, just have a chance to kind of interact with your fabulous organization. I feel like um, the Global Landscapes Forum is really doing fabulous work uh, in terms of uh, landscape work and sustainability and equity. So I'm just honored to, to be among you and to interact with your network of kind of young professionals. So um, in terms of your question, I guess it's fair to say that I've always been interested in science. Um, I grew up uh, in the space age where we were all wrapped with astronauts and I was very interested in astronomy. Uh, I lived in a very urban area, so the only things I could really see from my telescope were the moon and people in apartments nearby, but but still I was kind of wrapped with that. Uh, and then in, in my middle school years, um, that was when we celebrated the first Earth Day. And um, at the same time, I started doing some hiking, you know, in the amazing natural landscapes that we have here in the US. And um, that just made a deep impression on me and, and kind of honed an interest in the environmental sciences. Um, I had encouragement from my parents too, particularly my dad. Um, and I had a couple of really fabulous science teachers who hooked who hooked me in, and uh, I would just say, isn't that isn't that often the case? You know, you 
you interact with a, a mentor who um, who just kind of links you in in ways that are um, really powerful. Mm -hmm. I think we've all had mentors in our youth that have driven us on the courses that we're on. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about your own mentorship later in this conversation. Uh, but I would like to jump directly into the IPCC AR6 report, which is set to be released, uh, I believe, in a few stages over the course of the end of this year and early next, if all goes according to schedule. And it's a major report. It has more than six or 700 experts working on it, I believe, from around the world. And it's really going to have an influence on setting the climate change agenda for 2030. Um, and what's interesting about this report is it's up to the percentage of women working on the report to about 30%, which is higher than ever before. So why did it choose to focus on gender equity in the drafting process for such a major report this time around? Uh, really great question. So as you pointed out, um, improving gender balance um, is actually has been one of the priority activities of the panel during our current sixth assessment cycle. Um, and during the past 15 years, the gender balance of lead authors has improved from a paltry 15% of women as lead authors to um, approximately 32% of women um, leading some of the drafting in the current reports. Um, and as you also mentioned, um, I am one of the first women elected as IPCC vice chair, but I do so along with the fabulously talented Thelma Krug from Brazil. Um, the two of us are, are two of the three vice chairs. So why have we focused on um, equity and gender issues? I guess I wanna say, you can't hold good women down. Um, but really the IPCC, you know, it's we seek to harness the best minds in diverse perspectives to comprehensively assess the current state of knowledge on climate change. And these diverse perspectives include regional as well as gender balance. Um, you know, we engage a lot of developing country scientists in our work. Um, we also look to, to bring in experienced as well as new career scientists in the process um, and experts and academics from um, a, a whole host of, of disciplines. Because uh, we know from our experience that our reports are much more robust when we have diverse views reflected. So um, from a scientific point of view, it's important to have a gender focus. Research shows um, that girls and women are particularly vulnerable to climate change. And in many communities, women play an important role in addressing climate change. Their involvement in our reports uh, brings important topics into our assessments. Mm -hmm. You 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 mentioned um, you asked you know has this been or let me offer you know has this been a challenge to raise the proportion of women? Honestly, it is a bit of a challenge because we depend on author nominations by countries, and not every country who's involved in IPCC is focused on gender equality, but. Um, we try to hold outreach events in every country we visit for our author meetings or for our governmental plenaries. And um, we always make sure to highlight diversity, um, including women authors and young scientists um, in our outreach events and presentations. Um, because as an organization, our future depends on attracting these, uh, these folks and upcoming scientists. Absolutely. 
so what effect does incorporating more women into the drafting process have on the report and the outcomes itself? You touched on this a bit, um, but if you could speak more to it, that would be great. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, it's just fair to say that women bring a different perspective um, from of the world. Um, th they also tend to go into, um, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but sometimes women go into different aspects of the scientific fields. And as we are learning more and more about climate change, we realize that our reports have got to branch out. You know, we started um, initially in the IPCC looking really at the physical science aspects. But as we've, you know, come to live with climate change for all these many years, we realize we've got to be looking at the social sciences. We've even got to be looking at behavioral sciences because um, some of the kind of information that underpins how people act comes from you know, behavioral aspects. And so as we branch into broader fields of science and, and assess the information there, you know, we're finding that um, in many cases, women are the world leaders on that information. You've been with the IPCC through some major moments. It won a Nobel Prize in 2007. It released the 1.5 degree report a few years ago, which made headlines. So the IPCC itself has really grown to become a household name um, in many places, uh, which is huge for such a scientific organization. Uh, how has this outward increase in uh, notoriety affected its internal goals for equity? Well, I will say it has been a fun ride. Uh, but don't forget the reports um, that we released after 1.5 report, because we had one that was entirely focused on climate and land and another uh, special report on oceans and cryosphere, which is the frozen parts of the earth. And both of these, I think, are directly relevant to your important work. Mm -hmm. um, but I'll say that um, over the 30 plus years of IPCC reports, we have expanded our focus to issues like sustainability, equity, and just transitions, important aspects needed to advance real lasting climate solutions. Um, our reports are really are not really responsive to kind of external acclaim or notori notoriety. Um, they're driven by the assessment of available science, um, but you know, fortunately, the science has evolved to be kind of more inclusive. Um, also, I think it's no, uh, important to note we've had um, some really world class science women scientists involved in our reports over the years. Um, who have created a model for others to follow. Um, I think about Susan Solomon, who's best known for having both pioneered the theory of explaining how and why ozone holes occur in Antarctica and uh, obtaining some of the first chemical measurements establishing that man-made CFCs were the cause. Uh, Susan led one of our assessment reports. Currently, we have Delma Krug, who I mentioned before from Brazil, who has had a long respected career working on land use and forestry issues. Um, we have Valerie Masson-Delmotte, a French paleoclimatologist, and Deborah Roberts, a South African urban practitioner, leading reports. So look at just the diversity among, among those folks. Um, and you know, I think we all know from experience that when you have women in prominent roles, you attract women to want to participate. It's kind of as simple as that. Uh, thank you for naming some of those specific women and what they're studying. I think it's really nice to hear their names out loud and to um, bring them more attention. 
And this leads a bit into one of my other questions, which is that the IPCC uh, puts a heavy uh, degree of importance on the communication of its reports. So how is it working to communicate the work of its women scientists and how does that play into the work of the IPCC? Yeah, um, I'm glad you're raising this question because you know we've learned over the years um, that we need to pay more attention to the communication of our reports because as you pointed out, um, they increasingly have uh, real import in general society. When we release a report, it gets um, a, a fair amount of media play. Um, and, you know, we, we put out our summaries for policymakers, which in each report, which are supposed to um, kind of provide a more plain language description of some of the findings in our reports. But even there, we have struggled to um, sometimes portray complex topics and all the uncertainty or certainty associated with those findings in ways that are easily understandable. So over the years, we've really recognized we need to do a better job of communicating. And we brought in specialists to help us to streamline graphics and to revisit our wording and to kind of work as translators for scientific information that's been tremendously um, helpful. Really, uh, women play the same roles as men, um, explaining the science they are renowned for, but um, they potentially reach different audiences. And, and you know, Research shows that when it comes to climate change, it matters if the audience views the communicator as a trusted member of their community. Um, and um, I know I've said this, you know, um, more than once, and I will say it more uh, more than once again. But um, diversity matters in reaching the broadest number of people with our messages. So having women um, talking about the science that they are world experts on you know, just kind of brings in a community that we might not otherwise reach. Absolutely, and, and what you said before about having women attracts more women, um, it's a win-win. I wanna get back a bit to how you've progressed on your own career, which is a very interesting story, I believe. Um, and when you were brought on to the NOAA, I read someone describing you from within the organization as having a savvy sense of organizational and policy issues and a willingness to challenge the status quo in unselfish and constructive ways, which I think is a really beautiful description. Um, so I was wondering, how do you view yourself as a woman leader in science? Uh, what traits have come naturally and what traits have you had to learn in the process to get to where you are in your career? Well, I guess first I should say that's a kind thing for someone to say. I'd not heard that before. Um, <laughs> uh, but I do strive to challenge the status quo where appropriate, I guess. Um, in fact, that's the role of science, really. You know, what do we know and what do we still need to discover? Science um, is always evolving. Um, and it has been interesting to be involved in climate science over 20 years and to see how our certainty about climate change um, has been increasing as our understanding evolves. Um, to be honest, I trace my growth as a woman leader in science to my early experiences as an athlete. There are so many traits that cross over to help inspire perseverance in the face of adversary. adversity, for example. Um, there are times where, uh, as a young woman scientist, I had to assert myself in 
cultural settings where a woman's voice was not necessarily encouraged. Um, I learned how to be courageous on the playing field uh, and to take that into scientific leadership. Uh, there were times where I would be told I didn't have the, you name it, experience, knowledge, degree to do a job. And I had to have the courage to chart my own course to success. Um, but most importantly, I learned how to be a team player, that uh, we only get far by going together. And this last quality, most embodied in you know, collaboration, is probably really the most important to advancing science, because you really need to have diverse experience and diverse perspectives coming together to solve big, complex problems like climate change. We need to look at it from every angle to understand the complexity, and where the solutions lie. And research bears this out. We all bring unconscious biases into decision-making, and we need others with different perspectives to challenge those biases and to bring us to a better um, understanding. Uh, I think I'm a natural leader, or maybe my leadership skills were honed early by uh, sports, but I have had to learn a whole slew of skills that do not come naturally, I will be honest. For example, like many women, I have often discounted my experience or questioned the value I bring. Um, I, I'll bet that women who are listening to this right now can relate to that because it's very, very common. Um, um, I've come to understand how, just how common it is um, for girls and women. Sometimes we can be our own worst critic. So I really work on this. Um, also as a leader, I've had to work on making space for different working and communication styles, to be patient so that everyone feels heard and included. Sometimes the pressure to lead can also be a pressure to move fast and to not take the time to be inclusive. So I work on that as well. And um, honestly, I am not a natural public speaker. I like to have one-on-one -on -one conversations. So Gabrielle, it's great to be doing this, but um, I really do have to stretch uh, and work hard to present to large groups of people. Uh, and it's a work in progress. But maybe I'll just close by saying, you know, I found my niche um, in kind of encouraging leadership through athletics, but there's a whole host of ways for women uh, and girls to find their niche for leadership. It can be music. It can be a whole host of other pathways into leadership. Um, but I think, you know, finding it in one place uh, makes it possible to use it in another. Absolutely, to learn different skill sets and apply them across our lives. And I really liked what you said before about how we can be our own worst critics. I think it's very true that sometimes we have these unconscious biases against ourselves. Um, in the time of your work and over the course of your career, um, well, first I'll backtrack a bit by stating some facts that I think my colleague has dropped in the chat box, but just to repeat them, that women compose only 30% of researchers in science globally. There are huge pay gaps between women and men in the sciences. Uh, women often publish less than men, et cetera. Over the course of your career, what gaps between men and women have you noticed as being the most pronounced and how do we overcome these? Well, look, um, I've seen the gaps that occur from uh, years of working within scientific cultures dominated by men. Um, in some ways, it's a club that, that has needed to be blown open to make space for the legitimate contributions of women. 
And I can recount the challenges I've witnessed over my career. Um, but if you would indulge me, I think I'd rather talk about the challenges I've seen, the changes that I've seen driven by generation after generation of girls and women who, like we were just talking about, recognize their worth and indulge their scientific passion and curiosity. It's powerful. And, you know, women supporting and encouraging each other to work hard and succeed is a force to be reckoned with. Um, and to take positions of leadership and balance that with home life and other responsibilities, it, it takes bravery. And, um, and I've, seen, I've seen so many changes over the course of my you know, multi-decadal career. Um, and, and I'll also say, you know, I'm, I'm, it, we are seeing changes by many, many male scientists who are working hard as allies to make for a, a level playing field. So rather than focus on what's holding us back, I'd just like to maybe take a second to focus on what's pushing us forward so powerfully. And, you know, as a, as a person who's, you know, older in my 60s, I, um, I just look um, at folks who are working in the youth movement or early career scientists and uh, I'm just so grateful for the bravery that they bring to the table to uh, push to have their voices heard. Thank you for those inspiring words. Um, I was going to ask what questions you would give to young aspiring scientists, um, but it seems you've already answered that unless there's any other motto or something you would want to put on a billboard, some inspiration to give to young women. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Don't be held back, follow your passion. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I just feel like um, sometimes we, you know, sometimes we lose girls, especially um, in middle school where, um, where I, I guess all middle school age kids have a tendency to be more self-conscious. They're very concerned about their peer groups, but you know, it's interesting. The research shows that we lose a lot of girls in the sciences there because they stop engaging um, or asking questions. So, so you know, we, we just need to be brave and, um, and step up and, um, and realize that there are many, many people around uh, who can help um, us, you, to reach your dreams. And I would just encourage people, seek them out. They're probably waiting to help you. Mm -hmm. I hope so. And that brings our conversation full circle back where we started with mentorship. Um, I'd like to go now to some questions from the audience while we still have time. Um, so I'll start with a few. There's an overlap between a couple uh, people who are asking about indigenous women and how do we encourage and uplift indigenous women's voices and participation in scientific processes? Oh, I love that question. Um, you know, because indigenous women and indigenous cultures are really impacted by um, climate change. And in so many cases, they have long, long histories of adapting to change. And they have a wealth of knowledge that doesn't necessarily appear in our scientific journals, but is entirely relevant to um, crafting solutions in the climate space. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting, I mean, in, in the IPCC, but I would also say just across all UN agencies, there has been a concerted effort to engage in indigenous people and to bring their knowledge into the information that we assess, particularly in IPCC. Um, and that's really important. I'll just share a story. Um, 
So uh, I was the champion for the IPCC report on oceans and cryosphere, so the frozen parts of the world. And I knew I was going to be called upon to be one of the major communicators for that report. So I, um, you know, sometimes when you're a communicator for scientific reports, it's, it's really easy to just be very sciencey and data oriented. But I, I felt like I would do a better job, you know, from my heart if I had interaction with some of the people who were being impacted by the, um, the impacts we were demonstrating in the report. So I went up to Alaska and I visited with um, some, uh, a native community just right uh, on the edge of the Bering Sea in Shishmaref and um, met with those people to hear the stories about the ways that climate change has been impacting their lives. And it was just tremendously powerful to hear stories of how just going off to do their um, kind of sustenance hunting uh, in the old ways, um, people were being lost by you know traveling across the ice in, and having it be too thin to, to hold up a family member. Um, and it's just so powerful to hear those stories and to hear their experience and to uh, connect it with people. Um, so I feel like indigenous communities are just essential to this whole process moving forward. Absolutely. And is there anything you can say on their role in the upcoming AR6 report? Um, I know that we are assessing indigenous knowledge as part of the, um, the report. I don't know offhand how many are actual authors of the report, but I can say with certainty that knowledge is being assessed as part of, uh, as part of the report. Uh, a similar question is, uh, you mentioned before about countries that don't prioritize gender equity, um, or countries where it's a bit more of a struggle for women to rise to um, certain positions. How do, we, how do we assist those women? How do we overcome those barriers in countries where this isn't a priority issue? Yeah, so I mentioned that one of the direct ways that we do it is by holding outreach events in all the countries that we go to and just showing the model for having um, smart women, smart young scientists, um, scientists of color, all a part of uh, our panels to demonstrate the diversity of, of good scientists who are helping to improve our reports. Um, we, we have the ability also, um, I mean, we do, as I said, we depend on countries to nominate authors. We also just collectively from the leadership of IPCC will be looking out across um, the global community of scientists and recommending some of our, you know, some scientists that we know um, through our own interactions would be worthwhile to have on the, um, you know, working on the report. And the other thing is, um, you know, women themselves can can insert themselves into this process. The IPCC reports have a whole review, a really robust review process where anyone can nominate themselves to be an expert reviewer of the um, of the report and and just um, interact with us kind of directly by providing comments on our drafts. And often that's a way for us to come to know people who we might not normally know um, and to, you know, kind of be able to value their contributions and to consider their perspectives. That's a really important and valuable mechanism to have built into your process. It is. Uh, so we have two questions here about 
uh, I guess you could say inherent traits of women or commonly or traits that are commonly associated with women. And one is about women being natural collaborators. How do you, um, in terms of bringing about more change um, in these scientific processes, how are, how are women uh, facilitators or helping overcome silos and um, collaborate more effectively? Yeah, um, I mean, I have, I, I don't consider myself a natural collaborator. I've really been working on it. So, um, but I have seen so many women who are just fabulous collaborators and, and importantly, inclusive facilitators of conversations. Um, and, and just having women involved changes the conversation um, often, you know, around the table. Um, you know, and I don't want to overgeneralize because you know we're all individuals and we all kind of come with our different um, our different perspectives. But uh, I will just say, in my own experience, having women sitting around the table sometimes softens the conversation. It maybe is not so in your face. It's like, can we make space for different communication styles? Um, you know, um, I mean, I, I think in ways, there are some ways in which I've excelled because as an athlete, I'm, I push myself, I will, I will elbow others out so they don't talk over me. But um, not everybody does that and not everybody should have to do that. So, um, you know, just having a diversity of perspectives sitting at the table so that we make space for, for people's natural um, communication styles and, you know, their ability to contribute in really meaningful ways has been helped by having uh, women at the table. It's also helped, by the way, by having young scientists at the table uh, because there are, you know, um, there's a focus on safe spaces and, and things like that, that that they bring that generational, generationally I, you know, didn't grow up with. Um, and I, I love that. I think it really adds to um, the way that we conduct our business. Definitely. I think younger generations also bring a different vocabulary and a different tool set and a different outlook completely to these processes. Absolutely. Another related question um, is asking about silos that exist within the NGO spa spaces. And there's more and more research looking at the interlinkages between climate and biodiversity and biodiversity and land degradation and so on. Uh, what role, and again, you touched on this in the last question, but how are you seeing women play a role in overcoming these silos and bringing the different sciences together? Uh, well, I'm not an expert on um, the way that NGOs are siloed. In fact, I would say from my perspective, um, especially as a former climate negotiator, I found um, the NGO perspective to be really helpful in, in breaking down silos. Um, you know, I, I, I often have kind of described the uh, experience of being an, a, a negotiator, particularly I have been for the U.S., as, um, as being greatly um, positively influenced by the NGOs who are bringing in the perspectives of, um, you know, folks from outside the government who, um, because of their advocacy for various aspects, uh, in my case, of the climate agenda, they've really widened the space for compromise. And, um, you know, and that's been valuable. So my own experience isn't really that NGOs come kind of siloed, but I can imagine how 
that happens just like it does in in, in governments. And um, you know, I think part of the part of the solution to breaking down those silos is realizing just how complex some of these problems are and how much you need to engage people who have a different perspective or or a different scientific expertise that can you know help to do a better job of, of focusing on solutions i mentioned before you know broadening out to the social sciences and looking at folks who are assessing you know the solution space all of that helps us to present a better picture of what's happening um, with global climate change, but also what are the potential responses. Thank you. Uh, one question coming from Dolores. Um, in less developed countries, often the head of the national, the national focal points are men, and these are the people that nominate others to join the IPCC, I understand. Um, so that cr can create a barrier for women. Um, what would you suggest or have done to work around this challenge? Yeah, Dolores, great question. And I was referencing exactly, exactly that. Um, we have, from an IPCC perspective, we have a focal point in every country who um, often is the head of the delegation that comes to IPCC meetings, but they also have the role of nominating scientists. So a lot depends on um, you know, how attuned those focal points are uh, or the people around them who are kind of gathering the nominations to the importance of gender equity. I, I, I think one of the things that we've done recently that's helping is that we have adopted a new um, gender policy and an implementation plan. And we've kind of ensconced in that policy the um, importance of, en of engaging our work from an equity perspective, and also you know, some specific actions that we can be taking to encourage uh, a better gender balance. And I, I guess I would say, you know, it's always important when an organization kind of just adopts a, a, a policy on something as important as this to send the message that we take this seriously. And then a last question uh, with respect for your time, um, and I think this is a nice one to end on, but our listener Judith is asking if there are books or, um, and we can broaden that out to any other resources, things to listen to, films to watch, um, mentors that you've had, public figures um, that we can look up to uh, for young women leaders to get more inspiration and knowledge. Oh, that's a really great question. And I would benefit from the kind of collective thinking of people who are uh, a part of this conversation to share resources uh, on that. I'll, one that comes to mind, just because um, at NOAA, we have a, a group of women leaders who get together monthly to just discuss challenges and opportunities that we're all facing in our work. And recently, um, we watched this movie called Picture a Scientist. Um, which is, um, it kind of tracks um, three women scientists and the challenges that they've encountered in their careers. Um, it's, it's really focused on kind of the challenges they've had, um, but there's some useful information about, um, you know, how they've overcome that and where they used um, data to kind of make their points because sometimes data is the language, um, the language of the realm. Uh, but there's, you know, some really interesting things there. Uh, that um, that 
film has also got a study guide associated with it that then links to other resources that I also found valuable. For example, um, there were some uh, kind of bias tests that you could access to see where you have unconscious biases um, that, you know, kind of I referenced before um, how, how strongly I believe we need to kind of work actively to check our unconscious biases. So that's, that's one that comes to mind. But if you gather those, um, those ideas from folks who are participating now, I would love to also expand, you know, my, my uh, knowledge of, of important resources. Absolutely. I think that would be a really nice thing for us to do. And perhaps we can work to find a way to do that and um, crowdsource from our community some really great resources. Uh, could you say the name of that film one more time just to make sure if people missed it? I think it's called Picture a Scientist. Picture a Scientist. Great. Thank you. If I, got, if I have that wrong, I'll send you a note, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. Okay, great. Well, Co, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you on this holiday, and we really appreciate your time. Um, is there anything else you would like to add or like to say to all the women and girl scientists out there listening? Oh, I well, first, I'd just like to thank you for having me. Um, it gave me a chance to kind of look at your organization and to just be kind of blown away by the good work you're doing. Um, so really, what I just want to say is um, just bring your passion to science or whatever your passion is. Um, but, you know, be brave in that and and um, and don't give up. And as I said, there are plenty of people sitting around waiting to mentor you. Don't be afraid to ask. Thank you. That's a really nice message to end on. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again, Co. And we'll see you next time on GLF Live. If you enjoyed our conversation today, stick around for next week's episode on another critically important topic, why we can't achieve climate justice without racial justice. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. We'll see you next time.